Church, if you're visiting for the first time, uh, let me welcome you by saying good morning. Thanks for joining us. You know, I was uh, thinking what Scott opened the service with this morning by saying we don't come because a pastor calls us to come to worship. Um, it's God that calls us. And I was thinking of that and thinking as I kind of step into my piece of this morning's worship, um, you know, it's God that has something to say this morning. I don't really have much to say that would be helpful to you. And so um, my job is to stay out of the way so God can say what he wants to say this morning. As uh, we gather and uh, jump back into our uh, series in John, we did that last week. And just in case some of you were not here, um, chapter 13 in the Gospel of John begins uh, a scene in which we find Jesus and his disciples gathered just before he would be arrested. So for the next, um, I don't know how many weeks, I want you to keep that image in your mind because chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is all about the scene with Jesus and his disciples just before he leaves this upper room discourse, travels across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane while he's praying, he's arrested. And so we get this intimate scene in these chapters out of John. I, I love the way John paints the picture. I was thinking this morning that in our technological age, we turn on the TV and it's like we're a part of this scene, right? We're watching a movie or a show and you just get to see everything. Well, in the same way, this is a scene that John paints for us around these last hours of Jesus' life. And as Jesus wants to teach those that are gathered around him some final things before he gets arrested. So if you're not there yet, turn to John chapter 13. We use the ESV version, so uh, we have Bibles in the back. If you need one, please feel free to grab it. Keep it if you need one. If you want to use your phone or device, again, John chapter 13. Last week, <clears throat> we started with verse 1, went to verse 17. As a reminder, those set of verses show the picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet which really shocks them, because here it is, Jesus acting like the lowliest servant in a household by washing dirty feet. And then he gives them the command to do the same thing he does and imitate, model what he did. And so it's a little awkward, but we're gonna pick up right after that in verse 18 this morning. He had just said that a master or a servant is not greater than a master. He had just spoken about Judas being present with them who would betray them, betray Jesus for sure. And so in verse 18 he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. 
He who has ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless um, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Verse 33, little children, yet in a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I want to walk down through these so we get a little deeper understanding of this scene. Again, imagine the gift of God to open the scene for us to see what's happening. You've got Jesus gathered with the disciples during Passover week, the town filled with probably a million people. Everybody had traveled there. Jesus had been speaking about this being his last Passover celebration. They're in an upper room, and Jesus is going to give some final instructions. He washes their feet. In Luke's account, chapter 22, we see Jesus... Um, giving the command about the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake in. All that was taking place during this time. But in verse 18, as we started, Jesus is saying, Scripture is going to be fulfilled 
by what you're about to witness, by what you're about to see. It was important for him to always point back to Scripture because Scripture is truth and it reveals everything and that anything God says always comes true. And so when Jesus quotes this Scripture, which is, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, that is a Scripture verse from Psalm 41 and it's found in verse 9. So Jesus is quoting this right before their very eyes the scene takes place. Verse 41, or Psalm 41, verse 9, actually says this at the beginning, my very close friend who was with me betrayed me, took the bread and kicked me with his heel. Verse 19, he says, I'm telling you all of this before it happens. Why did Jesus do that? Because the events they were about to witness would seem so overwhelming, so confusing, that he knew the dilemma they would be wrestling with. So he wants to prepare them by reminding him again who he was and that scripture had predicted all of this. And so he includes these words so that you believe I am am he. I am that self-disclosed description God uses of who he is. And so they would have heard it. I am. I am God. I'm telling you this. Don't lose heart. Everything's going to happen is going to seem like chaos. Everything's going to seem like it's falling apart. But remember, I am, I'm he. Don't be worried. You've maybe heard me say this before, but it's so important to remember, nothing in God's control is ever out of control. Let that sink in a minute. Nothing in God's control is ever out of control. What's in God's control? Everything. And so as this scene unfolds and just chaos erupts, Jesus wants them to know that I'm in control and nothing that I'm in control of is ever out of control, so don't lose heart. Verse 20, he says, truly, truly, he says this twice in our set of passages, and he does that because it's like, pay attention, Listen to what I'm saying. Don't miss this, folks. Truly, truly, listen to me. This is really important. And he gives that I am statement. So everything Jesus is trying to do is this. Listen to what I tell you so that when you start to doubt, when you become fearful, when you wonder, who is this Jesus that I staked my life on? is going to be arrested and killed, you'll remember. And so in verse 21, there's this change in tone of the scene. It says, Jesus is troubled in spirit. And this is this infamous picture of Jesus, fully God, 
knowing all things that were going to take place, and fully human. Fully God, knowing exactly everything that was going to happen, and fully man, wishing it wouldn't happen. You feel the turmoil? Can you feel the tension that Jesus must have felt? Last week, we talked about the great commandment and how Jesus is the example of how to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And so when Jesus is troubled, he knows what's coming. And yet, without wavering one bit, he loves God and he loves his own to the end. Verses 23 through 25 is this interesting scene. And Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Can you imagine being one of the disciples sitting there? Like, what? One of, one of us is going to betray you? wonder who that is. They're, they're kind of looking around thinking, what does betray mean? Who is it? So Peter motions across the room, across the table to John, who's leaned up against Jesus, like, find out who it is. Hurry up, find out who it is. I kind of wonder if Peter's thinking, oh no, is it me? <laughs> Make sure it's not me, John, when you ask Jesus. But, but he's trying to get the inside scoop on who it is. And so it was probably pretty quiet as they look around the room at each other. In verse 26, Jesus gives them the answer without giving them a name. And this is so interesting to me. Why doesn't he just say, it's Judas? There he is. <laughs> he says, no, it's the one I'm going to dip this bread into the cup and hand it to. That's who. What's the scene? Notice the station set up here. Remember I said this is the night the Lord's Supper was instituted? And Jesus is teaching them that this is his body that's broken. This is his blood that would be shed. And he's dipping it into the cup after he taught this and gives it to Judas. I think he didn't use Judas's name because the disciples probably would have tried to stop this from happening. They probably would have said, get rid of Judas. You know, we're not going to let this happen. We know Peter would have done that because he cuts out the servant's ear in the garden. And Jesus says, no, it's the one who dips the bread, or it's the one I give the bread that I dipped the cup into. Then verse 27, it says, Satan entered him, meaning Judas. In other words, the final plan is unfolding. He will carry out that which he intended to do. And it makes me wonder, I, it, you know, is he demon-possessed at this point? I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. Sorry. You're like, Jeff, tell me. I, I don't know. I don't know if he was possessed, but I do know this. I do know he wasn't really one of Jesus' own from the beginning. We find no evidence reading in Scripture of Judas having a deep, 
devoted love of Jesus doing. There's no account of that at all. Matter of fact, we read just the opposite. He's helping himself out of the money bag regularly, stealing funds. So what's his sin that he's vulnerable to? One of them is he likes money. And so he's vulnerable. And the religious leaders come to him and offer him money that he would turn over Jesus, and he sells Jesus out. It's interesting when you think of Judas's life. You know, Judas really was all about finding a Messiah who would conquer the government, who would give him some power and give him some prideful position by saying he knew Jesus that overthrew the government, who would be rich and have money. He wanted all the things that were disassociated with the heavenly kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And it's a lesson for us that the more you entertain sinful thoughts, the more you disregard Jesus, the more you think you can play around with Jesus and just let him filter in your life when it's convenient, the more dangerous it is for you if you are not careful. Sin never helps you get better, folks. Sin takes you further and further and further away from God and the truth. And that's what we see in Judas's life. Verses 28 and 30, again, nobody thought it was Judas, even though they watched Jesus give him the bread. Maybe a lesson for us. And a scary lesson. Think about Jesus. He had traveled with them. He had listened to every teaching that Jesus had given. He had saw Jesus heal people. He had saw Jesus proclaim he's the son of God. He had heard God from heaven proclaim Jesus is the son of God. He had heard Jesus proclaim he was God. He had ate with Jesus and his brothers. He had traveled with Jesus and his brothers. And by every outward appearance, he looked like the real deal. Even to the point that they did not recognize it was Judas who was going to betray. Literally hundreds of thousands of people sit in churches around the world every Sunday who look the part that don't know Jesus, right? Dressing the right way, sitting in the seats, memorizing the songs. You can memorize the Lord's Prayer. You can do all that stuff and not know Jesus. And he obviously didn't. No, Jesus. And so in verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and then catch this phrase. It was night. Why did John use that language? Because he wanted to make a point. It was physical night, but it was spiritual night. The darkest day in human history was about to unfold up 
There's good news. It's coming up in a couple verses. Hang on. It was night. And so Jesus, in verses 31 and 32, after Judas left, and it says it was night, and it seems like the lowest point possible, he jumps into now, now, the Son of Man is glorified. What? What a contradiction. It was night, but now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified. And the two of them glorified. In the worst, worst event in human history, God gets glorified. How's that? Stick with me. He uses the word son of man intentionally. By the way, this is only a title that Jesus uses about himself. And he uses this to connect his divine nature with his human nature to point out that he is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, his Messiahship. And so it's a very intentional title Jesus uses when he says, the Son of man will be glorified. To be glorified means to be made great, to be renowned. Uh, Sometimes people use it to say famous, but it's a high honor, higher than anything. And so Jesus says, it was night, yet because it's night, I'm going to be glorified. And what I'm going to do will make you see my glory. In the darkest hour, the brightest light, Jesus shines brightest. Jesus, who came into the world to dispel the darkness and becoming lowly for us, will now be glorified. What will take place in the hours ahead will look like defeat to man. It will look like How could we follow Jesus and see this happen? We lost. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you this before it happens. We win. You're not following a fake. You're following me, the Son of Man, who is the Son of God. And then verse 33 says, I'm going to be with you just a few more hours. You're going to seek to find me to keep this close, intimate relationship that we have together just like this, but it's going to change because I'm not going to be here any longer. Versus um, in chapter 14 is this great exchange, which next week we'll get into, or next week, two weeks, that, that talks about Jesus reassuring them that where he's going, he'll prepare a place for them. But he's right now trying to say, I'm going to be leaving, things are going to change, but I'm always going to be with you. Don't lose heart. And then verses 34 and 35, he says, when I leave, I'm going to give you a command, an expectation for you to carry on after I leave. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. 
quite a scene, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine being one of the disciples around the table? What you just witnessed? You witnessed your Messiah bend down and wash your feet? You listen to him teach about this being the final Passover. You maybe are starting to put the pieces together a little bit when he institutes the Lord's Supper. You sit there and then you hear him say, one of you is going to betray me. And you watch it happen, yet you don't understand who it is yet. What a confusing set of teaching. What was Jesus trying to communicate? Well, I personally think there's two things I want to highlight from this story that are helpful for us. First is this. I think Jesus was teaching them, teaching us this morning, that the gospel story gives us hope in our human story. The gospel story gives us hope in our human story. Think of the fear the confusion that his disciples and his followers would face. Again, to the world, what's going to take place looks like defeat, right? I mean, it looks like you're going to let this happen to you, Jesus? You're just going to let all this take place and don't, you don't do anything? You're going to get arrested, you're going to get beaten, you're going to get flogged, you're going to be humiliated, they're going to take you out of town and nail you on a cross and put you on a hill beside two criminals, and you're going to say you're glorified by that. I don't, I don't get it, Jesus. That's what they had to be thinking as the story unfolds. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I think set the stage for us grasping how the gospel story gives us hope in our human story. Here's what it says. In him, meaning Jesus, is life. In him is life. And the life that was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The gospel story gives us hope in our human story because Jesus entered our time and space as creator to become man as man was meant to be and live to die so that the darkness is overcome. Sin is defeated. He had just said, all this is going to happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. He says, verse 19, I'm telling you this now to prepare you that I am he. And so he continues to minister to his disciples that are sitting around a table and trying to communicate to them, folks, things are going to get worse. Expect it. It's going to look really, really confusing. It's going to look like all of this does not make sense. Hold on. The light of the world has come and dispelled the darkness, and the darkness has not overtaken it. Jesus' disciples had to have so many questions. So many questions. 
What's this talk that you're leaving? What's this mean that the hour has come that you told us? What does this mean that I will be betrayed? What, what does all this mean, Jesus? I'm scared. I, I, I don't know how to process this. This just seems so overwhelming and so much out of control. Their fears, their thoughts are no different than ours. We don't live in a world that's fair, amen? We, we don't live in a world where it looks like things are working out to my benefit. We don't live in a world where things should be, you know, easy and trouble-free. We live in a hard world, folks. This is a tough world. And so the gospel gives us hope in our human story. Here's what I mean by that. The disciples with Jesus would have had a much better understanding of the Old Testament story than we would have. Matter of fact, most of them would have memorized the first five books of Scripture. I always feel bad saying that because not me, you know. Thankfully, God wrote it down for slow guys like me. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the world and he creates it. How? Perfectly. Yeah. Everything is perfect, just the way God intended it. And then chapter 3 happens. Remember what happens in chapter 3? Adam and Eve listen to Satan, who makes them begin to question God. Is God really that good? Can you really trust God? Is he withholding some good for you? This is me paraphrasing the dialogue, but that's what's taking place. And so Adam and Eve rebel. They reject God. They listen to Satan, and we learn at that point sin enters the world. It's always interesting to think about before Genesis chapter 3. No lies, no liars, no storms, no death. Everything was perfect. They sin against God. There's death, there's lying, there's disrespect. I mean, you name it, every single thing that's opposite of perfect is now taking place. And so the world in which you and I live in is tainted, polluted completely by the effects of sin. Everything. We don't know any different. The gospel gives us hope because the Christ entered our world to defeat sin and give us hope. He is, he is the answer to our problems. Let me expand on that just a moment. The answer to the world's problems is not found in political answers. The answer to the world's problems is not found in waking up people to new viewpoints. 
The answer to the world's problem is not making people more educated. The answer to the world's question is not being found more accepting of the way people are. The answer to the world's problems is sin being defeated by Christ by dying on a cross, being raised from the dead, now making it possible for you to be reunited with God because all the way back in Genesis 3, you were uh, distanced from God. We don't think right. We don't live right. We don't act right. None of us. Jesus comes on the scene to dispel the darkness, to break, break the disunity between us and God and restore it, if you would. Jesus has been saying that all along. You remember Nicodemus in chapter 3? He comes in the middle of the night to Jesus, right? He's the religious leader who knows all the answers because he's a Pharisee. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, you've got to be born again. In other words, you've got to follow me. You have to give your life to me. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, turn with me. Just a few pages back. Great set of verses. You probably at least know John 3, 16. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The gospel is good news because it is hope for our human story. The struggles we have, the lack of peace, the lack of joy, all are found in Christ. All are found in Christ. And for those of you that are followers of Christ, just in your own mind, take a moment. I thought of this. I remember when I became a follower of Christ in 1986, all the things I was struggling with internally, searching for peace and acceptance and all those things, when I bowed a knee to Christ and said, I believe I'm yours, forgive me, it's like this huge weight was lifted off my shoulders. Now, life wasn't perfect. I'm just telling you, I still have troubles, okay? But now I've been reunited with God. And the peace I looked for is now found. The gospel story, the gospel story gives us hope in our human story. John 16, a few chapters ahead, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. You're gonna have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He's saying the gospel story gives us hope in our human story. Don't expect to live a trouble-free life. It's going to be hard, but I'm with you. I've overcome the world, and all the things you have to worry about are not about having enough money and having all the right things that you think the world tells you will answer your questions. 
you have. Second, the gospel story gives us purpose in our human story. The gospel story gives us purpose in our human story. Remember my question a couple weeks ago in 2 Timothy? What do you strive to be in your faith? Remember that? I had multiple of you say, that was a good question. I never thought about that. Well, again, one of the answers is found right here. Jesus said, if you follow me, you're supposed to be my disciple. Isn't it interesting how God just keeps putting this word before us in these scriptures? You're supposed to be my disciple. He says, look, what are you supposed to strive for? You're supposed to strive to look just like me. Live with the same lifestyle, with the same passions, with the same priorities that I have. And I always find it interesting that um, we don't really hear Jesus say, look, memorize this, make sure you know this. Don't make sure you know about something. He's saying, look, you want to be shown to the world that you're one of my followers? Live this way. Live this way. So he says, the new command I give you, it's not new, by the way. We can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is tagging on to that. But the new command is live a life that models my life because that's what he connects in this passage. This is not an option. He's saying this is a new command. That means an order. That means this is something I'm charging you to do if you claim to be someone who loves me. Live this lifestyle that I lived so that the world will know that you're one of mine. And he says, I'm giving this to you. Does he have the authority to do that? Yeah, he does. If you're a follower of his. Being all, being all about the things Jesus was all about. Saying yes to living with his passions and his priorities that are modeled in the way we love other people. He says, you're supposed to love the way I loved. That's what he tells them. Think about some of the ways that Jesus modeled love. He modeled a steadfast love, a love that never changes, a love that's always the same. He modeled a sacrificial love that he said, I will do nothing on my own initiative. I only do what the Father tells me. And so regardless of what it costs me, I will do only as God has instructed. He had modeled merciful love. He looked upon humanity and had compassion on us, willing to leave heaven and come to earth and show mercy to us by dying on a cross. He shows a grace-filled love to his followers, a love that even though the world rejects him, he offers forgiveness and opens the door for reconciliation. He offers redemptive love. He knew the judgment that was due upon us for our sin, but willingly said, I will take that punishment. He modeled restoring love, intentionally pursuing his creation, 
and dealing with their sin in order that we might be called sons and daughters once again, and he modeled ascending love, a participatory love, saying, look, if you believe me, I'm sending you, now go do what I did. If you're in the family, act like one of the family. You know, when the world looks at us, they should see us as husbands and wives that love our spouse differently than the world. Amen? When they see us as moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, they should see us interacting with our kids and grandkids differently. Amen? When they see us interacting with our neighbors, they should see us interacting differently. Amen? When we go to our workplace, they should see the way we treat other people as different. Amen? Jesus is trying to get at, look, now I'm going to leave. I'm leaving you to be my hands and feet in my world to take the message that I've given you and trained you in for three and a half years. Go do it. But make sure you do it by living a life that's genuine. That's not a fake. Maybe the impact we don't have in our world is that we know a lot of the right things or we know a lot about things, but our life doesn't match it very well. 1 Corinthians 13 says that we're nothing more than a loud gong or a noisy symbol if our actions if our actions don't match the love of Christ. To our world, we're just The way you love people and the way you live out the love Jesus showed you proves you're a disciple. Now, don't flip out on me because I'm not saying we're compromising truth. You usually get that kind of thing. Oh, we're going to compromise the truth. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you live the truth, but you speak the truth and what scriptures say. In love. Jesus says this is really important. Prove to be my disciples. Our world needs genuine disciples of Jesus. Ashland needs genuine disciples of Jesus. They need us to look like Jesus. How do we do that? Well, tomorrow night, we have a great opportunity to show our neighbors in our community that we love Jesus and we love them, and thus they will see our disciple, that we're disciples. Tomorrow evening, there'll be over 3,000 people in downtown Ashland. We're gonna be one of the churches participating in the back to school night. And so for some time now, there's been a team of people gathering and putting together um, these bracelets, gospel bracelets. The kids will come, hear the gospel, be given a gospel bracelet, and leave with. We're not gonna preach at them. We're not gonna beat them down. We're going to tell them about the love of Christ. 
We're going to be a part of the back-to-school night, giving supplies and things to families that have needs. Yeah, I'd encourage you to come. You're, you're, you're invited. Be a part of it. Let people know you love Jesus. Love them. I'm not talking about being obnoxious, standing on a soapbox and preaching at people. I'm saying let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. Amen? Let me close with this. 2 Corinthians 5.20. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. Let them see our light shine. Let them see our love for them. Those who are lost, those who are separated, those who don't know Jesus. Let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready this morning to celebrate communion, think of this scene that we just studied, and these commands that you gave Jesus. You're teaching your disciples around that table that's been passed on for generations upon generations upon generations about your love for us and about the gospel that gives us hope in our human story, the gospel that gives us purpose in our human story. And we are here this morning because there have been those who have went before us for generations that have been faithful and thus proven to be your disciples. Might we be those same kinds of people that thus proved to be your disciples in our day, in our age, in the time you have given us. Thank you for this hard teaching, Jesus. Amen.